I do love that last song, don't y'all? That's kind of what the whole Bible is about. We're going to kind of talk about it today, how he loves us. He loves us so much. He loves us even when we look to other things to give us, only that which he can give us. Uh, my name's Nick Crawford, and I'm the community group's pastor here. We're still in this sermon series uh, that we've originally called Acts, uh, where we've been walking through the true story of God um, and his grace that goes out to the world. We've seen Jesus ascend to heaven and him send the Holy Spirit to empower the church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The spread of the gospel is what Acts is all about. The church is even described by a term of movement. They're known as the people of the way. In Acts, God is revealed as the savior of the whole world as he takes the gospel to the ends of the earth as he works through his church. So far, We've been racing forward, too. We've been racing forward at almost light speed. But today, today we come to a stop. We hit a roadblock in Ephesus. We hit a roadblock in Ephesus. There's a problem. There's a conflict. A riot is going to ensue, as you're going to see. But there's a problem. The problem doesn't lie with God, though, or even his message of good news. The problem lies in the hearts of the people. It's a worship problem. Fundamentally, the problem is their worship. And we share the same problem we all worship something where you're whether you're spiritual religious or not we all worship something we all look to something or someone to give us only what God can give us Ralph Waldo Emerson says this he says maybe we can get there we go he says a person will worship something have no doubt about that we may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts but it will come out that which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. We all worship something. We all look to something or someone to make us happy. And isn't happiness always right around the corner? It's always right around the corner. It's like, man, if I just get settled in my career, if I pay the house off, if I get the car, if I get the girl, if I get married, if I have kids, or if you're like me, if you get the kids out of the diapers, that's when, that's when, Everything's going to be okay. It's always something, but it's always just outside of our reach. That's a worship problem. And, the, and if the object of our worship is not built on the glory of God, then it's called an idol. Idols prevent you from giving your whole heart to God. Idols hold you back because they take your hearts hostage. Idols stop the gospel from flowing through you to other people. People. You see, there are things, there are things that hold us back from what God has called us to. Today, we're going to look at the gospel and idolatry, how the things that you hold on to are the things that hold you back. We've, we all fall into that trap of worshiping false gods as our hearts, as idols take our hearts hostage, but God comes in the flesh, he rescues you from those idols, and he gives you a new heart, and church, that is good news. We're going to be in Acts 19 today. We're going to walk through verses 21 through 41, but let's pray first. Heavenly Father, you are so worthy. You are so worthy of our worship. You're so worthy of our whole hearts. Help us to give you everything that we have. It's already all yours, God. You are great, and you are mighty, and you are powerful to save. So, Father, I pray for the hearts in this room that they would be soft, that they would be tender and receptive to hear and respond to the gospel, the good news of your son coming and living and dying and rising again to take away what we couldn't do. 
So Lord, I pray for the people here that they would not just see a sermon, but they would see a Savior today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Acts 19, we're starting in verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also go see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying, Gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the, of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had even come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk, kind of like the mayor of the town, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So what we have here is some confusion, some chaos, and a riot in Ephesus. Let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus to kind of put this riot in some context for us today. Ephesus was the richest city in the richest corner of the Roman Empire as a major port city, all of the trade of the region came through its harbor. And it was a, an extremely religious city as well. In fact, the world's largest temple was theirs, dedicated to Artemis, the goddess of fertility. The temple was four times larger than the Parthenon, literally bigger than a football field, and it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Ephesus had a major tourism industry built around this temple too. And the sale of these little temple replicas, these shrines that Demetrius and company were making. It was a huge moneymaker for them, by the way. 
The focal point of this great temple was the statue of Artemis, which was believed to have been carved out of, a, out of a meteorite, that sacred stone that fell from the sky. So when Paul hits the scene, and as verse 11 in this chapter tells us that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, things started to change. Quick word on Paul. Paul stayed in Ephesus for about two and a half years. Now he was known for his apostolic and evangelistic gifts. Paul loved to take the gospel to new places and to new people, particularly those who did not believe. But Paul stayed in this place. He stayed long enough to make a difference. And Luke, the author of Acts, selects these events to show us what kind of transformation can happen when the gospel takes root in a place. And so we come to the riot the major scene, the major event of chapter 19, we see God's power at work as he changes a local community through the church. You see, when the church acts as the church, the people of God called out of the world and sent back into the world with the good news message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, things change. People change and places change as a result. But Artemis has her worshipers in every city, even today. And it's dangerous to hold on to things looking for hope and trust and putting our trust in them for what only God can give us. Here's our problem. This is our problem. We hold on to the things that we can control and the things that give us a sense of security, joy, and self-worth. We hold on to these things. Romans 1.25 says this, that we have all exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've worshiped and served the creature and not the creator who is forever praised. So, how can we change? How can we change when there are some things that we just can't let go? The answer. The answer and the main idea today, the thing that you need to know is that God is powerful to rescue you from the things that hold you hostage. Because he is more powerful and greater than the things that we so often put our hope in. Church, the gospel rescues you for a greater purpose when your idols are unveiled, when they're exposed, and when they're replaced. The gospel rescues you for a greater purpose when your idols are unveiled, exposed, and replaced. First, the gospel unveils our idols. An idol is the thing that you just can't let go. God is at work through the church in this passage. I want you to know that. Paul is not the main actor here. It's the movement that Paul represents and the power of God that drives it that changes a people and a place here. Paul went after the idols with the gospel. In Acts 17, we see that Paul saw their idols. He, he literally saw their idols. And he preached the gospel in the synagogue and in the marketplace. Some people even heard the truth with even heard the truth which says I'm saved by grace alone, whereas idolatry says that I'm saved by something else. These people were so affected by the good news that their lifestyle changed and they stopped chasing the idols of Ephesus. In verse 23, it's the church. It's the church, the people of the way that create this disturbance, which that word means a great commotion, a stir, as the late great Jack Crystal used to say, pandemonium. But some people couldn't respond to the truth because other things were too big for them. The gospel has come to town. 
and it moves people to believe, let go, and live differently. The gospel so powerfully changed their lives that the sale of these little shrines had fallen off. And what we have here is a great Ephesian stock market crash as the power of the gospel has turned the business of idolatry bad. To the craftsmen, this is no little business. It's a big deal. They cannot let this business go. They can't go without a fight. They can't let go of the trade that gives them a sense of security, joy, self-worth, and identity. It's a big deal. Wealth is what they can't let go. Their material concerns have held them back from properly responding to God. The gospel has unveiled their idol. Earlier this year, my wife Kristen and I, we got to take our three-year-old son to Disney World. And before we left, a lot of people were telling us, like, Nick, I don't know, man. You got to, don't take him yet. He's too young to kind of remember and appreciate all that happens in the Magic Kingdom. And after the trip, I'm telling you, y'all, take your kids to Disney World while they still believe in magic. The trip was really good for us. It was a lot of fun. See, Koi, he likes Toy Story. So getting to see the real Buzz Lightyear was a major highlight for him. And I was curious, to say the least, just to see how he would really react when he saw Buzz in real life. He was like nine feet tall, right? He's not a really welcome sight. He's huge. But so we wait in line as suspense builds. The closer we get, the bigger Buzz really does grow. And it, we finally get up to the front of the line, and it's fight or flight time, right? It's put up or shut up time. Coy's got to make a move, and I'm waiting I got the phone here ready to snap the pic, and here's what he did. It made me so proud, so proud. This little dude, he puts his hands on his hips, and he pokes out his chest, and in his deepest voice possible, he looks at Buzz, and he says, to infinity and beyond. <laughs> Dominated. Man, I was like, that's my guy right there. Here he is. That's the picture. He's literally pushing an autograph book into Buzz's face, ready for the for the autograph. My kid, I mean, he dominated. He stepped up the plate and hit a home run. Now, here's what you need to know about this story. Kristen and I, we didn't have a choice in the matter. We had, no, we had to see Buzz. We had to. Didn't have a choice. For months, Coy had been building Buzz up in his mind, and he really was much taller than nine feet tall in Coy's little mind. You see, we even catch him now standing in the mirror rehearsing that little Buzz line. We still catch him doing that. Buzz is Koi's hero. He's much larger than life to Koi. And so we had to see Buzz Lightyear. Had to do it. Didn't have a choice. If Koi had lost a chance to see Buzz, he would have been devastated. The trip would have literally been ruined. We had to see Buzz. But even though Koi didn't bow the knee when he finally saw his hero, he did look to Buzz for only a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment that his true father can give him. Idols are the things that we, some, that we look to that, that only God can give us. They're the things that are so central to our lives that if we lose them, our lives would feel meaningless and we would be devastated. So what are you scared to lose? Business was so big to these Ephesians, Ephesian tradesmen that they couldn't stand to lose it. What are you holding on to? What's too big for you to lose? What are you holding on to? What about forgiveness? Who is it that you can't forgive? What's the thing that happened back then that you can't let go? What happened? What about the fear, the shame, and the guilt of the past? Can you let it go? Has it become an idol? Fill in the blank. If I had this then everything else will be okay. That could be an idol. 
You can't live, a, live without it. What about a better career, a relationship, getting married, success, success in ministry, money, approval, beauty and appearance, kids, having kids. These aren't bad things. Hear me, these are not bad things. They're good things that we make into God things. Could you be happy or content without them or are you holding on too tightly? The things that we hold on to are the things that hold us hostage and ultimately hold us back from fully giving ourselves to the one who loves us most. Secondly, the gospel exposes our idols for what they really are. Look, idols are powerless because they need to be defended Exposing idols exposes their weakness, and people are going to jump to defend them. The gospel threatened the Ephesian trade, and we see the craftsman actually quoting Paul in verse 26 that gods made with hands are not gods. Now, it's neat, it's interesting to me that Demetrius and the Ephesian craftsmen, they don't take issue with Paul's message. They don't attack the gospel, they can't. What they do instead is they jump to the thing that they can't lose. They go to defend their idol, which is their prophet. And this has some major implications for their goddess Artemis, who they thought was the protector of their city. You see, in verse 27, Demetrius says that there is danger for her. Their god is in peril, and that puts their trade in jeopardy. That's their fear. That's their fear. They're afraid that they're going to lose the security and joy that they have from these many shrines of a fake God. If she's counted as nothing, that devalues their trade. Think about it. They were businessmen. They sold her, so they fixed the value on her. If she's counted as nothing, her value goes down, and so do their profits. So when the gospel comes in and says that you are saved by grace alone, Artemis is exposed as powerless to save, and ironically, they jump to save her. That's exactly what happens in this story as Demetrius rallies the troops to go out to the theater and defend Artemis. And a mob, scene, a mob scene ensues. Verse 29 tells us that the whole city is confused as they rush to defend her in the theater. They don't have a unified message because they don't know the truth. Some are crying out one thing, some are another. A lot of the people there don't even know why they're there. For two hours, they're sitting in this 25,000-seat theater screaming, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, I know a lot of Ole Miss fans. I know a lot of Ole Miss fans, and I don't know one of them that would scream hotty toddy for two hours. It's madness. It's absolutely madness. People who can't let go of their idols react violently to defend the things that are powerless to save them. They had to defend their gods because their gods could not defend them. But God doesn't have to be defended, He's powerful. Look at Acts 17, verses 24 to 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This past Friday, Kristen and I got to go to a small group summer cookout at the home of Robert and Corey Aiken, and it was fun. It was fun to get together with everybody. One of the guys piped up and he, said, he asked if anybody had tried out the new steakhouse on County Line Road, Doe's Eat Place. Now, I haven't. If you own Doe's, let me hear you. I'm going to give you some business, but I haven't, I haven't been there yet, so what I'm about to say is not justified. Um, but before anybody could respond to whether or not they'd been to Doe's, I piped up and said, no, 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 no. This is a franchise. 
This is a friend. The original Doze is in Greenville. That's my hometown. You see, why would I pipe up to defend a restaurant? Why would I do that? Because somehow, some way, my self-worth is wrapped up in that restaurant. You see, I'm from Greenville, where the original Doze is from. And Doze is kind of famous. I mean, come on. It's kind of famous. Look at the people on the wall. There's some autographs that might mean something to you. Doze is kind of famous. And I don't want people to think that I come from nowhere. <laughs> so I piped up to defend this restaurant. And when I did, it was kind of like I was defending myself and my own reputation. We do this. We do this. We jump to defend the things that need saving. So what do you jump to defend? What's the thing that you have to save because it can't save you? Idols enslave us to the notion that we can be saved by something else. Look, whatever is an absolute requirement for your happiness, that's an idol. It's something you actually worship. And when it's threatened, you get defensive. One of the signs that an object has become your idol is that fear begins to define you. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our little God is threatened in any way, we jump to defend it. We get defensive. So what are the things that make you defensive? What are they? Money? Success? Those things will force you to put other people down so that you can stay on top. What about romantic relationships? What about them? They will force you to neglect all boundaries to keep them. You'll do things that you know are wrong just to preserve and protect the relationship. What about our kids? What about our kids? Our kids force us to defend our own self-worth through them. They'll wind up hating the games and interests and the values that we value. What about our reputation? You already heard mine on those, right? What about our reputation? We'll defend our image, we'll exaggerate our wins, and we'll minimize our mistakes. Moral record, what about that one? What about our moral record? We'll defend our perfect record by doing good and avoiding bad just for the sake of it. And what we wind up doing is just avoid getting caught. Exposing our idols reveals just how powerless they really are to save us because they need to be defended. But God is powerful to save because he needs no defense. Third, the gospel replaces our idols with the true Savior. In verse 30 to 31, Paul wished to go among the mob, but his friends talked him down. They talked him off the ledge. Paul wanted to go at the mob. Why? Why would he risk his life? Why would he risk it all to go in that mob? Maybe Paul had something that he couldn't lose. When you have something you can't lose, you're free to risk it all. Contrast Paul's reaction to the Ephesians. Right when the confusion hits a fever pitch, the town mayor, the town clerk, kind of quiets the crowd down. He gives them two, two reasons for his appeal, both of which are announced to us by the word for in verse 37 and verse 40. In verse 40, 37, you see, for you have brought these men here who have done nothing wrong. These men... That refers to Paul's traveling companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. Idols demand sacrifices, and the mob had dragged these two guys into the theater like hostages. Paul was willing to risk it all to defend them, but it turns out he didn't have to. There was a greater power at work to protect them. Verse 40, for we really are in danger of rioting today. In other words, we are at risk. You see, the clerk 
was the liaison between Rome and Ephesus, and his job was to keep the peace. The, mo- the mob had run the risk of bringing Rome, the Roman authorities in to start pulling some freedoms from them. The people were not free to do as they pleased, it turns out. And once again, it was the fear of losing something that drives, that drives the mob's behavior. They all had a good thing going in Ephesus, and they were not willing to risk it. So they all go home. Paul was willing to take a risk, but they couldn't because they couldn't risk messing up that good thing. John Q. Y'all remember that movie? John Q. It's about 15 years old, maybe. It's your typical hostage negotiation movie. Same plot line, except for this one has Denzel Washington in it. So it's a really good hostage negotiation movie. But what we find out is that John Q. is a, he's a really good guy. He's a really good guy, but he's put in an impossible situation. His son has some heart failure, and he needs a heart transplant to live. And through some circumstances that were not John's fault, I think he was reduced in the hours that he was working. Uh, he, he got taken off of insurance, so he couldn't afford the really expensive heart transplant. Out of options and with nowhere left to go, John goes too far. He enters the hospital with a gun, he gathers up some hostages, and he makes his demand. His little boy is going to get his heart transplant or all the hostages die. But towards the end of the movie, we see and we find out who the real hostage is. You see, the real hostage in this movie is John Q. Because we find out that his plan only involved him taking the life of one person that day. His plan was to take his own life so that his son could have his heart. But turns out, he doesn't have to, and his boy is saved. Every hostage situation is the same. Hostages need saving. The kidnappers demand a ransom price that someone else has has to sacrifice and risk to pay. But we know there was one who did pay. It's the same with us. Same with us. Idols, even well-intended ones, always demand a sacrifice. And it's that price that will push us too far. When we look to someone or something for the satisfaction that only God can have and give, we become captivated by them as our idols take us hostage church idols demand sacrifices from us but jesus became the sacrifice for us and he doesn't just save us from hell he doesn't just save us from hell he saves us for something much much more god doesn't merely have a plan for our next life he has a purpose for this life too isaiah 19 24 tells us that he has blessed his children to be a blessing in the world You're saved for something. Church, God plans to use you to draw more of the world to himself. And that is truly truly free. And our job is not to save people. Our job is simply to point people to the one who does. But the worship of idols holds us hostage. It will hold us back from that purpose. So what do you live for? What is it that you live for? If you live for a career, what if you fail? Probably lose your job. If you live for your spouse, what if you do the unthinkable? You lose. If you live your life through your kids, what if they mess up? You're both crushed. If you live your life for approval, what if you mess up? We'll lie and we'll cover up and we'll do the exact same things that they did in the garden. Tim Keller says this, Jesus is the only God who will satisfy you when you obtain him. And he's the only God who forgives you when you fail him. 
Living for created things hangs unfair expectations on them. We can't hold up. The weight is too heavy for us. God did not intend for any created thing to carry the weight of the world. He did not. While Paul risked his life to fight the Ephesian idols, it cost Jesus his. Look, in the Old Testament, idolatry was known as spiritual adultery, a capital offense that required a death penalty. So it took a death to satisfy it. We've all cheated on God by giving ourselves to other things. We all need a Savior. God had to come because we couldn't measure up. We weren't good. The cross says that we were inherently bad, inherently prone to worship lesser things. Artemis can't stand up to that. She never once defended her worshipers. Never once did she go into the theater to speak on their behalf to do what her worshipers could not do for her. None of our gods can do that except for Jesus. We're afraid of what we're going to lose, but Jesus came to lose so that we could have his gain. He who was rich became poor so we could become rich. He who was righteous became sin so we could become his righteousness. Jesus is the groom and he loves his bride so much that he gave his life for her. You see, there was another mob scene. There was another mob scene where confusion reigned, or at least appeared to reign. And all the people in there were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus, when he was given the chance to defend himself, he stayed silent like a lamb before his shearers. When everything was being stripped from him, he stayed silent because Jesus didn't need a defense. And he defended us from the thing that we needed saving from. So what is it that you have to worry about? You can't lose what Jesus bought for you. You're a child of the one true king church what is it that you've been holding on to defending and sacrificing for turn to the one who defends you and stop turning to the things that can't let's pray